I felt that um, that if I was um, a believer, that if if I died, I was definitely going to go to hell for what I did. I became a guide outfitter, and our primary species was grizzly bears. And in those days, there was no quotas on grizzly bears over a number of years. I was responsible for guiding people, mostly non-residents, to Canada, and they would come with me to kill a grizzly bear. One of the things I always couldn't understand at the time, and at that time in my life, and I would ask these hunters, and I asked almost every one of them that I guided or that I met, like, why did they want to kill a grizzly bear? Why was it that important to come all the way to a place like where we were and and end the life of a, what I thought, just from skinning them and, and um, been around them the way I was, that I thought they were absolutely uh, the most perfect specimens I'd ever seen in my life. Like every hair was in place, every muscle was, you know, they had to be a perfect specimen to survive in their habitats. And I just couldn't understand why these people found a need to, to kill these animals, and I would ask them, because I was very curious about it. I never ever got an answer from anybody. I got a lot of excuses why they would kill a grizzly bear, but I never ever got a reasonable answer. And I could tell that all of them pretty much uh, felt very uncomfortable when they tried hard to be honest about it. They would kind of go deep inside their own psyche, and it made them feel uncomfortable. So they could never provide me with an answer. I have been thinking about living a quiet life in the country where I came from. This is a story about the legacy we want to leave behind. What will we reflect on when we look back, when we teach our children and our children's children about our earth and the sentient beings that walked alongside us? Join me as I journey deep into the Yukon interior. Traveling from Vancouver to Dawson City, I will then travel by helicopter two hours north across Alpine Tundra, a vast rolling landscape unfragmented by roads. At times it feels like nowhere land, void of life while simultaneously feeling like an ethereal realm brimming with mystery and ancient history. Together, we will explore how the fates of humans, grizzly bears, and the natural world are all connected. Far away in distance and far away in time, we are venturing to one of the high peaks in the Yukon's Ogilvy Mountains, Bear Cave Mountain, joined by our guide, Phil Timpany. From the Grizzly Bear Foundation, this is GrizzCast. As we continue to share these stories, please consider supporting GrizzCast with a financial gift by visiting our donation page today.
like you say, in a very remote area. Well, we uh, are pretty remote here. Very. We're just two, oh, two kilometers, oh, well, two kilometers south of the Arctic Circle here. Um, but also we're a two-hour helicopter ride from Dawson City mm -hmm. and another hour from Old Crow. We're very remote here. And you're the people you bring here, and you are probably the only people these bears ever see. Yes, I'm pretty sure that that's the case. Uh, it is remote, but... <laughs> well, that's part of the charm of this place as well. It um, is, yeah. You know, I got that sense after being here a couple of days about how remote we are. <laughs> we climbed to the top of the mountain here and got a good look at the, the landscape and the river, and and you realize <laughs> this is true wilderness. This is the this is the Canadian North. That's yes. pretty special. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. What can the heart of a man desire more than a quiet life? It's October, and a dark fog curls off the precipitous peaks, cloaking me in a feeling of tranquility. As the seasons swirl around us, shifting from autumn to winter, Phil and I sit quietly by the riverside in Yukon's Nianlichik Fishing Branch Traditional Park in the traditional territory of the Vuntut Gwich'in First Nation. Cooperatively managed by the Yukon and Buntut Gwich'in governments, the fishing branch is one of the few areas worldwide that provides a protective habitat for grizzly bears and spawning salmon. Sitting here next to Phil, he is at times quiet and calm, in other moments more restive, mirroring the frigid air of spawning chum salmon. As the sun breaks through the heavy mist, a sense of awe shivers down my spine. I'm here to watch the persistence of life and death. I'm here to sit at the base of ancient caves, mountains, and hills. I'm here to leave no trace. I'm here to be reminded that I am part of a greater whole. I'm here to listen. It's nice to be here with Phil Timpany on the banks of the Fishing bit Branch River in the Yukon. Why don't you say hello, Phil, and just kind of describe where we are. We are on the Fishing Branch River, about two kilometers south of the Arctic Circle. And the Fishing Branch River is a tributary of the Porcupine River, about 40 kilometers of river that flows out of the Ogilvy Karst into the Porcupine River, which in turn empties into the Yukon River in Alaska. And, and just across the way here is uh, Bear Cave Mountain. Right across the river is Bear Cave Mountain, a few hundred meters. And Bear Cave Mountain is um, a very important mountain to the Vuntagwichan people of Old Crow. And it's a very spiritual place and a very important place that was sacred to them and still is. And it's a area known as Nianlidzik, which is uh, in Gwichan is where f the salmon spawn. Which we just heard flapping around <laughs> in the background. Yeah, we're sitting here watching... Uh, chum salmon. About a hundred chum salmon spawning. They've just arrived the last few weeks. and So this is definitely where the fish spawn. The mountain itself is, to the Gwich'in people, is referred to as Chai Chan, which means in Gwich'in, mountain with hole in rock. During the time I worked here for the government, we identified 22 caves that were used by bears on the mountain.
unlike the rest of North America, this northwest corner of Canada was one of the few places in the world that remained ice-free during the last ice age. Known as Beringia, this area acted as a refuge for plant and animal life, as well as for the first humans to arrive on the continent. From time immemorial, First Nations have cared for this land. Once home to woolly mammoths, the giant shore-faced bear, bison, saber-toothed cats, and more. We are here at the base of Bear Cave Mountain, famous for these prehistoric remnants. They've been carved into the limestone, formed and developed over millennia by rain and snowmelt. The caves have been preserved for present-day grizzly bears to den, offering a warm and safe place for a long hibernation. This is the land of beasts. There's caves in the surrounding area on each side of the valley going upstream and a few actually downstream from us here but mostly upstream and of course to the north there's a, another mountain of the same karst geology that we've discovered some denning caves in that area too probably for, from you know forebears from this area also the Gwich'in people have um, always known about the bears that lived here and this place is particularly interesting because uh, it, it wasn't glaciated during the last glaciation. Yes, this is a very interesting area that way. It's part of the Beringia, which is uh, known to be um, in this area south to the, the uh, Dawson City area and then well into Alaska, where the, um, the area wasn't glacialized at all. It was more of a, um, a, a grassland at the time. And there were some really interesting critters roaming the area, like woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and short-faced bears and horses, uh, wild horses and uh, lots of caribou, which still roam the area today, a certain amount. Um, so it's a very important area historically, as well as currently, of course, because it has the, the cultural significance to the Vantagwichin people. And, of course, it's a major salmon contributor to the Yukon River system as a whole. The area consists of both public and First Nation settlement lands, the claim for being a first in Canada, if not North America. While the protection of wildlife, particularly grizzly bears and salmon, is the priority of Fishing Branch protected area, the plan also recognizes another kind of industry that relies on the presence of grizzly bears, commercial bear viewing. In 2005, in partnership with the Vuntut Gwich'in First Nation, Phil started the first and only bear viewing operation in the Yukon. So you run a bear viewing operation here within this reserve. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started in this unique place in the world. It's, it's an interesting story, I suppose. Uh, the first year I came in here, I did a contract for Fisheries and Oceans Canada to work with some of the salmon here. I put one year in doing that and I trained some Funtut Gwich'in on the project uh, enumerating salmon into the system downstream from here. And because I, um, I, I did at that time have some experience with grizzly bears and salmon, the Yukon government hired me in 1992 to look at the ecological inventory in this area in order to assess it. Uh, of importance because the Yukon government had begun a uh, protected area strategy that 
they wanted to identify a certain number of places in the Yukon that might deserve protection. Phil has worked in and walked these lands for over 30 years. Known today as the Bear Whisperer of North Yukon, he is a bear viewing guide, filmmaker, and bear researcher and specialist. National Geographic photographer Christina Mittermeier once described Phil as a Jane Goodall of the bears, a man with an intuitive understanding of these animals. What's your most treasured possession? My knowledge of grizzly bears. What's the worst thing about your job? Having to realize that the grizzly bear season is over. Seriously, that is the worst. As a guide, Phil is able to connect with grizzlies intimately. 30 to 50 bears come here every year, adding up to one of the highest concentration of grizzly bears in North America for this northern latitude. One of the real things that I've learned through bear viewing and every operation is different. What we hear is that the guides are learning how to bring us into bear country, be around bears, be very close to bears, and we're gaining a new understanding of what that means. The fear kind of goes away when you're on a bear viewing trip. Yes, exactly. And that's what we experience here. And um, we, we do quiz guests periodically and ask them about their experience. And um, one of the most common words that we hear from our guests is that the experience they have with bears, with us, is very calming. That, that's one word that we hear a lot more than any other word to describe their experience. Right, which is funny for people to hear because when, you know, in our culture, people, it's the big grizzly bear, and in Hollywood, <laughs> it's always like Leonardo DiCaprio getting his arm chewed off by a bear. Exactly. But, you know, but at the same time, people love these animals and they're interested. And then when we spend time with them, like <laughs> you do and other guides, we start to realize actually we can be around these animals quite closely. That's interesting because your model of bear viewing is quite intimate compared to other operations, right? Other operations are, some are tracking them and, but here at Bear Cave Mountain, uh, the bears just kind of walk right into camp at times and really close to us. I think that's something unique for this operation. Yeah, we like to, um, we like to create a, a scenario where we're actually living with the bears and in, in truth, coexisting with them in every part of the area that we use. So one of those areas, of course, like you said, is the camp. So we do um, allow bears to come into the yard in the camp. We don't deter bears from the place where we gather in for the evenings and where we sleep in the cabins. And so we're always um, viewing bears no matter where we are. And if the bears behave, they're welcome to come into the yard. And I found that working with these individual bears that are quite tolerant, they become tolerant to people, at least uh, over a, t a time. They seem to enjoy coming into camp, rubbing on the trees, uh, or just, just coming in for a visit to, to be out of curiosity. Or... Got a bear. Got a bear here. Look, we got a bear. Grizzly. Grizzly. Yeah, good boy.
last time was we get <laughs> most about my job. Well, we don't usually get interrupted by a grizzly bear, but <laughs> she's the star of the show, so I guess it's okay. Most of the grizzlies that surround us here seem like old friends of Phil's. Sophie, the mama bear, and her two cubs come into camp, and like as you said, she's showing them who we are and what this place is and how to be around it, and it's okay, and yes. they're rubbing trees right there and she, <laughs> yeah. so she not only oh not only is she showing them where to fish and you know how to den and but she's also showing them who these humans are that are in their yes. in their habitat yeah all the tolerant females end up doing that um, they do it early in the season when they bring their their young to the river they'll eventually get over that but they'll they'll introduce their young to you and bring them really close and spend uh almost an unusual amount of time in your very close proximity, sometimes just a few meters away. And it's to condition the cubs to the fact that these aliens that they're sharing this habitat with her are okay and to be trusted. And a lot of the rationale behind that, I believe, is that um, a lot of the females with their youngs do use the yard and use us sometimes at the viewing sites for security from other more dominant bears that maybe are generally a bit more wary of us than they are. So it, it's all a, about survival. It's a strategy, of course, but um, it just goes to show you the intelligence of the animals mm-hmm. and, and how um, very um, adaptive they are to, to different circumstances and, um, mm-hmm. and being able to take advantage of those circumstances. It's great to spend time with them. It's nice to hang out with you and Tucker. Uh, Tucker's in training. So sure. <laughs> he's been pretty good at brown bears. He's learning. Yeah, he's a young boy in training. That's uh, Tucker the dog biting the sound <laughs> mic here. Yukon grizzlies breed for the first time between the ages of six and nine and reproduce once every three to four years. For reproductive rates to be successful, grizzlies depend on the abundance of berries in this ecological reserve, as well as supplements of roots, grasses, sedges, and horsetail. All tasty snacks for grizzly bears in the spring and summer months. A river of life runs through the open tundra plains. Thermal springs and porous limestone karst beneath the mountain keep the river flowing year-round. Fishing branch at the base of Bear Cave Mountain is exactly what a grizzly bear mother needs. Here in the Yukon, as temperatures fall, a mystical combination of freezing winter air and clear water causes the fur of fishing grizzlies to coat in ice, transforming them into the ice bears of the Yukon. Earlier in um, this year, I was in Yellowstone and I was in the Kootenays and all along, these are different environments for the bears. And we know that grizzlies used to be into the Great Plains and far south as Mexico. And and so everywhere they're a bit different. They have different habitats, maybe different behaviors. What's unique about these bears here at Bear Cave Mountain? Well, I can't say I've even noted one thing about bears in their behavior other than forage related behaviors. And what do they like to eat particular to this area? 
that's unique. What do they eat here? And what do they like? To, yeah, they obviously there's salmon. Yeah, there this something is a, else that's unique to this them. This is uh, in this area right here. The the draw of course is salmon. Um, I think in general this area immediate to this uh, spawning area is is a pretty hungry country for bears. Uh, there are there is fruit in the uh, subalpine. Yeah, we've seen in this area. crowberry and what, yeah, so what kind of berries? Well, they? there's Kinnikinnik uh, on the slopes, south-facing slopes. There's blueberries, uh, low bush blueberry, and there's um, crowberry uh, a little higher up in, in the subalpine and right on tops of the mountains in the alpine. Mm. Um, in some of these riparian areas here, especially in the spawning area, there's high bush cranberry. And in some of the bogs and the wetter areas, there's low bush cranberry also. So you got the low bush and high bush cranberry. So a lot of the bears come from a long way to come to this place. Three types of salmon come here to spawn throughout the year, drawing bears like Sophie to the river's edge. Each fall, one of the largest species of Pacific salmon and the main food source of grizzlies arrives, chum salmon. Thousands of chum salmon travel 2,000 kilometers to spawn and die, developing a striking red tiger stripe pattern as they enter fresh water. That's about the distance from Vancouver to Los Angeles. The Gwich'in people have treated this area because of the fish stocks that were, could be seen here all winter, both salmon and uh, non-adromous uh, fish that live here oh, through the winter. Yeah, they could survive. The, um, Arctic grayling. Arctic grayling. Here. Right. There's round white fish. Um, and there's um, coho salmon that come here in the next month and a half that spawn right into December. So it was a place where if someone was in trouble uh, and hadn't maybe intercepted the caribou herds or done very well in the fall collecting their winter's um, supplies, they, they could actually come here and survive the winter just on fish. And a lot of people, when they can't see this, but we'll describe it to them. When you look at this creek, it's pretty amazing. I've worked in salmon streams, uh, salmon restoration, and but this stream in particular there's lots of oxygen just bubbling up all over the stream and you were talking about some of this water that's basically bubbling up from the ground and oxygenating these reds where the salmon lay their eggs could be up to eight or nine years old yes some hydrologists have uh, researched in here from the university of calgary and they discovered some of the water entering the river from the ground here has been in underground for nine years there's um, a lot of dissolved oxygen in it, and it's very cold water. And it's the perfect conditions for incubating salmon eggs. So the whole area here really, the oasis we call it of Bear Cave Mountain, is really a result of uh, high water quality. During one of the most impactful global events in history, bringing to light the close link between human and animal, the COVID-19 pandemic, these grizzly bears continue to live deep in the Ogilvy Mountains, unaware of the shadow that looms over their future. In this traditional territory, grizzly bear hunting is banned. However, this is not the case for the rest of the Yukon. Every year in the Yukon, an average of 90 bears are shot and killed for trophy. Though listed as vulnerable by the Yukon government, and recently listed by the federal government under the Species at Risk Act, the listing does not offer any legal protection for grizzly bears. Furthermore, grizzly bear population estimates in the Yukon are incredibly out of date, 
with one of the last counts taking place in the 1980s. With grizzlies extirpated in much of their historical range, it has never been more important than now to ensure the long-term survival of these majestic animals. As we journey together across the grizzly bear's range, I invite you to join me as I ask questions about my own place in conservation and how we can all leave more room for wildlife, ultimately reframing our relationship with grizzly bears and the intrinsic value of ecosystems. The other thing I wanted to ask you, something that you and I have in common, when I was, I grew up in a hunting family and when I was about 20, I put down my gun and got more involved in conservation, got my first job as a park ranger, and then went on this path. And the same thing happened for you. You used to work as a guide outfitter, and then you moved into bear viewing and filming. Tell us a little bit about that moment for you when it kind of shifted. Well, when I moved north, um, I, I had, I'd had some experience with grizzly bears on the west coast. I lived in Kitimat for three years after I got out of high school. And... Um, I did get a good introduction to grizzly bears. I didn't really know much about them, but uh, when I moved north, I was the kind of young guy that I just wanted a life in the bush. Yeah. And um, I knew that... You've done pretty well. I this could, is, yeah. This is the bush. Yeah, we're in the bush. <laughs> <laughs> I, one of the things that I, I got introduced to was the, the guide outfitting industry, along with trapping. And it was a way to make a living and a livelihood. So. And, and still be in the woods where you want to be with wildlife, which I was quite passionate about. The area that I worked in was um, a really excellent bear habitat. I became a guide outfitter and our primary species was grizzly bears. And in those days, there was no quotas on grizzly bears. We, we we killed a lot of bears and over a number of years um, I, I was responsible for um, guiding people mostly non-residents to Canada they were primarily US and European residents and they would come to BC and come with me to kill a grizzly bear so I was involved in quite a bit of the killing and um, it never really sat right with me. I got into the woods and I was happy in the woods, but I, I think I just had a more of a underlying respect for grizzly bears than what I was actually doing. And um, I, I realized too that I didn't really learn much about the bears. I learned where they were and I learned some of their behaviors but all you do is basically find one and get within a couple of hundred meters of it and kill it. Mm -hmm. And I got a little tired of that, to tell you the truth, and something about it all didn't sit well. I didn't feel good about myself. I owe them a debt. I was responsible for a lot of grizzly bear deaths. I feel that I owe them. I'm really trying hard to pay that debt back and um, and also out of respect to the animal being so intelligent and, and so able to understand what coexistence is with me. In sharing how people found their role in grizzly bear conservation, the challenges and the rewards along the way, 
We hope to inspire people from all walks of life to put their skills, time, and money toward conservation and join the movement. From Yukon and beyond, ecosystems, fish, and wildlife health around the world are being threatened by the impacts related to climate change, conflicts with humans, industrial development, and habitat destruction. You're telling stories not just about these amazing places that people come and visit and the amazing animals that are here, the grizzly bear, and the salmon, the wolves, and the caribou, but you're also telling a story about how people coexist and the challenges we face. <coughs> Yeah, it's it's part based around my own experiences with bears over the years, and and how I've learned to coexist with the animals, and I've learned myself over the years that uh, bears are relatively easy to coexist with, in the sense where you share a land base together without conflict, and the basic the story basically is um, is how you achieve that and what it takes to to be able to tolerate bears and have bears tolerate you in a rather peaceful environment without uh, conflict. And the, the rationale for that is that I've had to work in areas where there are a lot of bears and I'm working in close proximity to them. And I just found it takes a lot more energy and time to, to deal uh, with bears in a more of a conflict way than it does to do it in a more peaceful way and understanding way so mm -hmm. that's part of the message mm -hmm. that we're working on right now is is to show that 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 coexistence with bears is you just learn that um, the risks are almost non-existent when you have a bear that trusts you and will bring its young to you and even sometimes leave them with you and go off on their own, the risk factors just decrease dramatically. A hunter-turned-conservationist, Phil has redefined his relationship with grizzly bears. In honor of their forgiveness, he has dedicated his life to defending grizzlies and is transforming the way people view and interact with these ancient beings. During the, the process of getting used to these bears and having a number of bears every day working uh, very close to me uh, and to the very close proximities as to where we were working, I got to realize that these animals first were very, very intelligent and I started to also understand that their brains were just loaded with knowledge of the ecology, a lot of which I, I could not even comprehend. But they, they had a, a vast knowledge stored up, especially the adults, and they were constantly passing information on to their uh, offspring when they had family units come into this place. And I, I just gained such a huge respect for these animals. I think my passing into to be a, uh, an ambassador for or a conservationist of grizzly bears has come from that experience. That's a real personal story you shared with us. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to episode two, Legacy. You can find our donation page and behind the scenes photos and videos of the ice bears of the Yukon on our website at grizzcast.grizzlybearfoundation.com. Thanks, Phil. You're very welcome. It's nice to be here at Bear Cave Mountain in the Yukon, watching grizzly bears with you. Nice to have you.
From the Grizzly Bear Foundation, this is GrizzCast. GrizzCast is hosted by the Grizzly Bear Foundation, a charitable organization solely dedicated to the welfare of grizzly bears. I'm Nicholas Scapolati, the executive producer and your host. This episode was written and edited by our producer, Lindsay Marie Stewart. Our story producer is Leah Hutchings. Interviews were recorded on location at Bear Cave Mountain by Cass Shield. Allo composed our theme music. Original solo acoustic guitar music is by John Denbor. This episode features the song, The Country Where I Came From by singer-songwriter Mike Adele. Grizzcast original album art by Marie Wyatt with graphic design by Lindsay Marie Stewart. Share and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. The country where I came from, the country where I came from, the country where I came from. Grizzcast is brought to you in part by the Commercial Bear Viewing Association. If you are planning a bear viewing expedition in British Columbia, book with a CBVA operator. The CBVA ensures the best experience for you and the bears. To book, visit www.bearviewing.ca.